Welcome, and thank you for joining us for this Neuroscience CME podcast. This continuing education activity is co-sponsored by the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center and CME Outfitters, LLC. The CE certified activity is funded by CME Outfitters, LLC, and supported by educational grants from Lilly USA, LLC, and Pfizer Incorporated. This activity is titled Schizophrenia, Treating a Chronic Disease with a Focus on Early Intervention, Adherence, and Recovery. Our distinguished faculty for this activity are Dr. John W. Newcomer, Dr. Deanna O. Perkins, and Dr. Alexander S. Young. Dr. Newcomer, our moderator for today's activity, is the Gregory B. Couch Professor of Psychiatry, Psychology and Medicine, and Director of the Clinical Trials Unit at the Institute of Clinical and Translational Sciences, or ICTS. He is also the Director of the Regulatory Support Center at ICTS and Medical Director of the Center for Clinical Studies at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Newcomer has disclosed that he receives grant support from the National Institute of Mental Health, the National Alliance for Research on Schizophrenia and Depression, Bristol-Myers Squibb Company, Janssen LP, Pfizer Incorporated, and Wyeth Pharmaceuticals. He serves as a consultant to AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, Bristol-Myers Squibb Company litigation regarding medication effects, GlaxoSmithKline, H. Lundbeck AS, Janssen LP, Organon Pharmaceuticals USA Incorporated, Atsuka America Pharmaceutical Incorporated, Pfizer Incorporated, Solvay Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Tikva Therapeutics Incorporated, Vanda Pharmaceuticals, and Wyeth Pharmaceuticals. He serves on the Data Safety Monitoring Committee of Dynapon Sumitomo Pharma America Incorporated, Organon Pharmaceuticals USA Incorporated, Shearing Plow Corporation, and Vivas Incorporated. Dr. Newcomer also receives product development royalties for metabolic screening forms from Compact Clinical, Flash Jones, and Bartlett Publishing. Dr. Perkins is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of North Carolina and Medical Director of Outreach and Support Intervention Services, or OASIS, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Dr. Perkins has disclosed that she receives grant-slash-research support from Janssen LP. She serves as a consultant to Dynapone Sumatoma Pharma. She is on the Speakers Bureau for Eli Lilly and Company. Dr. Young is a professor in the UCLA Department of Psychiatry and Director of Health Services at the VA Desert Pacific Mental Illness Research Education and Clinical Center in Los Angeles, California. Dr. Young has no disclosures to report. Over the next hour, Dr. Newcomer, Dr. Perkins, and Dr. Young will lead us through their presentation. The faculty have been informed of their responsibility to disclose to the audience if they will be discussing off-label or investigational uses of products or devices. A course guide for this activity, which includes slides, disclosures of faculty financial relationships, and full biographical profiles can be found at neurosciencecme.com forward slash 380 or call 877-CMEPROS. To receive CE credit for this activity, you may complete the post-test and evaluation at neurosciencecme.com forward slash test, or you can complete the credit request form and evaluation form, which are included in the course material. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the activity. Thank you.
Welcome to Neuroscience CME-TV, your personal link to the most widely recognized experts in the dynamic world of the neurosciences. CME Outfitters, the award-winning accredited provider of continuing education in Rockville, Maryland. Hello, my name is Dr. John Newcomer. I'm the Gregory B. Couch Professor of Psychiatry, Psychology, and Medicine and Medical Director of the Center for Clinical Studies at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. It's my pleasure to welcome you to Neuroscience CME Live and On Demand, the continuing education series devoted to the needs of the professional neuroscience community. Neuroscience CME Live and On Demand is brought to you by CME Outfitters, a best-in-class accredited provider of continuing education for multidisciplinary clinical audiences. Today's broadcast of Neuroscience CME Live and On Demand is also being streamed live and will be archived at www.neurosciencecme.com. I encourage you to visit the site for more educational activities to help you and your colleagues in your practices. I would also like to remind you to stick around after our Neuroscience CME Live and On Demand uh, after the show segment where you can, you're invited to call or email us with your most challenging cases or questions. Our goal is to further translate the evidence presented today into clinical, practical tools that you can use to improve the lives of our patients. We've received a lot of positive feedback regarding this segment and encourage you to keep sending in your cases and comments. And with that, welcome to our show today. Today's program is entitled Schizophrenia, Treating a Chronic Disease with a Focus on Early Intervention, Adherence, and Recovery. I'm truly excited about today's program, and I hope we can share some best practices and quality measures with all of you that will aid us, you and and all of your colleagues, in your care of patients with schizophrenia. I'd like to start today's program with a patient case that we all, similar to one we would all struggle with. John is a 20-year-old sophomore at a junior college. He was a straight-A student in high school and a promising athlete, but lost interest and has now become a C student. He's suffered from mild concussions while playing football. He recently reports feeling like others are talking about him and states that when delivering pizza, one of his jobs, he hears that customers are making derogatory comments about him. Attending class has become difficult because he's also hearing students making negative comments. He suspects this isn't real, but the experiences are becoming more and more compelling. He also reports that he's spent less time with friends because he feels they're sensing his negative energy field, is his description. His chief complaint is anxiety. He admits to cannabis use. And his parents state he's become more irritable, rather antisocial in their uh, language. And they thought it was just a teenage phase, but it's clearly getting worse. So what would your working diagnosis for John be at this point? Our internet audience will see a window pop up with the polling question. Is your current diagnosis for John A, an anxiety spectrum disorder, B, traumatic brain injury, C, psychotic symptoms secondary to substance abuse, 
D, a psychotic process, psychosis of some type, or E, I don't know. We're giving you that choice today. Please make your selection now. I look forward to discussing your responses with our faculty, and hopefully we can discuss some of the evidence that may help guide your decisions. Let me now quickly review our learning objectives for today. Our first learning objective is to utilize available tools and evidence to improve the early recognition of schizophrenia. Our second learning objective is to identify the key considerations that may impact adherence and outcomes when developing a treatment plan for patients with schizophrenia. And finally, uh, to create a treatment plan that includes patients, families, and the whole treatment team. We also want to evaluate the usefulness of competency assessment instruments in the evaluation um, of clinicians and our skills so that we can improve our clinical skills. I would now like to introduce you to our faculty joining me today. Dr. Deanna Perkins is a professor in psychiatry and medical director of the Outreach and Support Intervention Services Program, OASIS, at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill in North Carolina. Deanna, welcome back to the show. Thank you, John. Also joining me today is Dr. Alexander Young. Alex is professor of psychiatry at UCLA and also is the director of health services at the VA Desert Pacific Mental Illness Research Education and Clinical Center in Los Angeles, California. Alex, thank you for joining us today. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. So we have a lot to cover. Let's jump right in. Our first learning objective is to utilize available tools and evidence to improve the recognition of the prodromal phase of schizophrenia. Deanna, what are some of the symptoms in the prodromal period that clinicians need to be able to recognize? Well, John, if you ask people with schizophrenia how their illness began, about 80% will say that that the illness began gradually, that psychotic symptoms um, gradually emerged over time. And so these kind of symptoms make up the prodromal period. Um, For example, like with John, you can have attenuated positive symptoms or psychotic symptoms. John was experiencing ideas of reference. He was also um, misperceiving what other people were saying about him. Um, Sometimes people will talk about frank psychosis, but it's very brief in duration, maybe lasting only a few seconds. For example, hearing your name called out loud. Patients will also report the emergence of negative symptoms at this stage. You know, for example, John was um, having trouble with his motivation and drive. Um, But along with these frank psychotic symptoms, we can also see other associated symptoms like with schizophrenia. So anxiety, depression, hostility, irritability. Patients can report cognitive impairments, um, attentional problems, distractibility. This is often affecting school function. Yeah, already decreasing school function before the frank psychosis. That's right. And then they can, in fact, present with those kind of behavioral symptoms, um, decline in school function, social withdrawal, or um, even suicidal thoughts, um, suicidal actions, or aggressive acts um, towards other people. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Deanna. Now let's look at how those symptoms may have presented in our patient, John. Okay. Um, I think we're still waiting for the polling results okay, to come sure. up. But, but uh, So the key distinction here is that we're not quite at the full presentation of uh, enduring psychotic state. And, and our goal today is going to be to try to identify that early and decide what interventions are appropriate at exactly. what stage. Okay. Okay, so let's look at uh, how those symptoms played out in John and what our audience thought about a working diagnosis. So if you look at the panel here, we got about 12% 
uh, saying anxiety spectrum disorder, 7% a traumatic brain injury, uh, the majority, 35%, with a mood, psychotic symptoms, perhaps secondary to substance use. We had the marijuana in the story. And uh, 28% with a psychotic diagnosis at this stage. And a good, fair 18%, I don't know. Because, of course, there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of factors playing out in this particular one. Alex, what do you think about these results? Well, I think there's, there's clearly no right answer here. This is a very challenging situation. It's a very common situation that we see. But at this point, it's really not possible or very difficult to make any one diagnosis per se. So I think the real question is here, um, how do we understand these different uh, situations and how do we learn more? We've got our radar up for a lot of possibilities here. We're going to be talking about what the probabilities are as we go forward. Um, Alex, what's the rationale for treatment during the prodromal phase? Um, you know, can, can we intervene early and modify course? Well, we all know how challenging it is to treat people that have been ill for, for years. So if you see someone that's been ill with schizophrenia for 10, 20 years, it can be very hard to improve their functioning. It's a challenge to get them back to work or change the illness course. So I think the real idea here is can we intervene early? Can we catch them early, very early in the illness course, or even in the prodrome, and do something to prevent the disability? Yeah, we've got a nice graphic. I think it's probably up for the audience, uh, emphasizing that, I mean, we, we could be talking primary prevention here, the idea of making an intervention before functioning even starts to deteriorate. I think that's certainly a research topic. We're not there yet clinically. So really our focus right now is when patients have begun to manifest that decline in function, when the symptoms have begun to manifest um, the opportunity for interventions, but they're not fully psychotic. Um, you know, I think um, the, the, the real question Deanna, uh, if we're able to modify the course of illness, should we be starting antipsychotics at, at this um, prodromal phase? Um, it would be great to have an intervention that we knew worked and was safe. So while 80% of people who develop schizophrenia will have a prodrome, it's only a, a third or less of patients who are experiencing these psychotic-like symptoms that actually go on to develop a psychotic disorder of any kind. So we've got two-thirds who are just not going to go there. One-third is. Mm -hmm. are, are there ongoing research projects that, that look at early interventions and these different trajectories? Yes. Yes. I mean, this is something I've, I've been following these patients long-term and just struck by the fact that someone like John can completely remit. So the work that I've done um, has, has been with the um, North American Longitudinal um, Prodrome Study, or NAPLES. Mm -hmm. And this um, is a consortium of NIH-funded studies that have pooled their data in order to better understand risk factors for developing schizophrenia. And, and here we found consistently across sites, less than a third, um, developed a psychotic illness. What we have done now is developed a set of diagnostic criteria that can reliably identify this clinical high-risk state and are now in ongoing efforts to try and develop biomarkers that can further our ability to identify who is really at risk for right. schizophrenia. Who, who's going to turn mm -hmm. into the one-third. Um, Alex, can you say more about the risk factors for progressing on to, to frank psychosis and you know, what groups of patients might be at greater risk? Right. Even though we can't say really who's going to go on to develop schizophrenia, there are some things that make us more concerned and make it more likely. Uh, certainly things like family history, a family history of psychiatric illness, um, or 
uh, ongoing drug abuse, those are things to be concerned about. Uh, in general, uh, the things that worry us more is when the symptoms start to look more and more like fully formed schizophrenia. So when the psychosis starts to look like the kind of psychotic things that we see in schizophrenia, the more bizarre or the more delusional or the fully formed hallucinations, or when the cognitive deficits start to look like the more profound cognitive deficits that we see in full schizophrenia. Mm. As those move along, it becomes more and more likely that schizophrenia is going to be the diagnosis. So, so maybe taking the next step for those patients who do go on then to develop uh, uh, an enduring psychosis, um, Alex, can you tell us about, there's, there's research talking about early interventions in that population. They've now crossed the line, but it's that first opportunity to really aggressively treat. Right. This is where we really want to get better at what we're doing. Um, it's a very exciting area. The idea is, again, we have these folks that are chronically or persistently ill and disabled and may have lost a lot of the skills that they need. The hope is, can we intervene really early and change the course of the illness? And there hasn't been a lot of research in this area. There's not. There's a few studies here and there, but really there's a need for more work. So this is where NIMH has uh, recently started a large a research study to really better understand treatment, to take what we know, some of the evidence practices, apply them to this early group, and see if we can really change the trajectory of their illness and really prevent the disability. Yeah. So, Deanna, then stepping back, we've talked about early interventions for the prodrome mm -hmm. when we don't know who's actually going to go on. We've also talked a little bit about uh, interventions for people who now clearly have the illness and are, are going to be uh, going on for an extended course. Can you summarize for us what clinicians need to remember here for all these early interventions? Yep. So when people are presenting with this mix of symptoms, of symptoms that look like psychosis but aren't severe enough, um, perhaps mood symptoms, here is where monitoring is really key. Mm. Um, because if that person happens to be unlucky or in the third that's developing a psychotic illness, you want to catch it as psychosis emerges. You don't want there to be a year or two delay yeah. in treatment. So frequent monitoring is key. Also, This is not time for every four-month visit. No. And, and also, there's a lot of education that's happening during this monitoring. So when a person does become psychotic, then you, can, um, you already have a therapeutic alliance, and yeah. acceptance of treatment is uh, much more likely. Um, also, um, while a person is experiencing these high-risk symptoms, we can also uh, pay attention to the functional impairment, so psychotherapeutic interventions that one would use with any high school student or college student that is having functional impairments can be potentially helpful at this and it's stage. And it's going to pay off whether they go into the two-thirds that don't progress or That's whether right. they're in the one-third. So I, I think that was very useful for clinicians, certainly for me. Thank you both. Let's now move on to our second learning objective, which is to identify the key considerations that may impact adherence and outcomes when you're creating a treatment plan for patients who now have clinically significant psychotic symptoms. Deanna, I know you've done a lot of work in this area. What are some of the key risk factors that will impact medication adherence? Um, so I like to think about factors that affect ability to be adherent, someone who wants to take their medicine or is at least willing to but is having trouble, and then factors that affect motivation to take medicine at all, their willingness to take medicine. So things, factors that affect um, ability are things like drug use, um, depressive symptoms, uh, cognitive dysfunction and disorganization, um, lack, lack of 
Things like lack of insight, medication side effects, affect a patient's willingness. And interestingly, in first episode patients, we find that a poor treatment response affects a person's willingness to engage in treatment. People are expecting here to get better. Yeah, yeah. and uh, that's not, uh, not unlike uh, anybody else. Alex, can you say something more about... Uh, it, there are some patients who, who don't want to take their medicines, but there are some patients who really want to and yet are having trouble getting the rubber on the road. What, mm-hmm. well, what's going on here? Well, it's important to realize that's not uh, only in schizophrenia that we see that. And people, for instance, with other chronic illnesses or persistent disorders like, for instance, hypertension, um, many people a large proportion actually don't take their medication reliably. And if they may miss a dose, forget that they took it, they may actually feel better and have no immediate consequences of missing a medication dose. So the people with schizophrenia have those kind of issues. They may also have on top of that, there's also a group that's going to have trouble with this organization. Mm-hmm. So this, this organization may be internal in terms of they just may have a hard time due to their cognitive issues, keeping track of what's going on, what medications they've taken, have, haven't taken, what's the plan is, and so forth. Yeah, this is actually a key cognitive deficit is this sort of declarative memory function, knowing whether you did or didn't mm-hmm. take your medicine a couple of hours ago. I mean, it's terrible, terribly targeted to this problem. I yeah. have that problem, too. So. <laughs> and, yeah. and go ahead, go ahead. Well, and it's also important to remember that many people with schizophrenia are in a lower socioeconomic group and may have trouble with their day-to-day lives. Their life itself may have a certain lack of organization. So they chaos in the environment. Chaos in their life, yeah. yes. Now, what about, Deanna mentioned the side effects, that there are medication side effects that, of course, can be a turnoff. What are some of the key side effects that evidence shows drive adherence problems? Well, I think it's important when thinking about side effects to really think about patient-centered care, recovery-oriented care, to think about from the patient's perspective. So it's going to be different in every patient what side effects they're particularly concerned about. We know with uh, many of our medications that we use now, for instance, that weight gain is a substantial or common side effect. That may be something that's concerning to some people. Others should be concerned about perhaps about that, but may not be. And then there's also the, as we, if the pendulum swings back to the older medications and we're starting to use more of the older medications, it's important to remember some of the side effects that we used to see with those medications, like the akathisia, motor restlessness, dystonic reactions, tardive dyskinesia, things like that that are really very unpleasant for patients. Very unpleasant and and clear research base shows that they impact your willingness to mm-hmm. take those medicines again. And I think we really want to emphasize that some of these problems, weight gain, for example, happens with both first and second generation medications, and it's about individual molecules. And some drugs have greater or lesser risk for these things. And you see that in both the uh, conventionals and, and the second or atypical antipsychotic medication classes. So, Deanna, what are some evidence-based interventions that clinicians can use in practice to improve adherence? Yeah. So, um, Don Belligan and others have been trying to develop or standardize behavioral interventions. And um, they've come up with something called cognitive adaptive training. And cognitive adaptive training is a psychosocial intervention that aims to provide environmental supports to improve a person's activities of daily living, so just hygiene, ability to um, uh, cook, clean after themselves, but also focuses on medication adherence. And they've developed a, a, a standardized module that focuses almost exclusively on medication adherence, emphasizing things like uh, pill boxes, mm-hmm. um, telephone reminders, working with the patient and their family to come up with something that's going to work for the willing but um, 
b b poor ability yeah. patient. Yeah, specifically reinforcing the medication yeah. issues. Yeah, and one of the important things about um, uh, cat and farm cat is that they're often done in the home. So you're in that patient's environment, you see what the chaos and the disorganization is, and you work with that patient to, to develop an intervention. And this intervention works. Um, yeah. We can see in this slide that in individuals who participated in either farm cat or cat, um, they were significantly less likely to relapse over time the than patients grail. who didn't. Yeah, yeah. and so um, it's really very impressive work. Yeah. That's great. And we've got case management teams, you know, in many of the community mental health center and VA practice center uh, areas where uh, that kind of in-home intervention is not uh, an unreasonable expectation. But, but, you know, I think even individual clinicians can do that with their patients. I always ask yeah. patients, how do you remember to take your medicine? Right. And A virtual tour through the home. That's right. And yeah. pill boxes and reminders, yeah. it's pretty it's easy. Huge. Yeah. Alex, what about the, the uh, assertive community treatment programs, the ACT uh, teams? Do, do they have tools or measures that, that can be used in this area? Yes, ACT is really it's a critical intervention to have available for you. It's for our most severely ill patients, the ones who are being rehospitalized or becoming homeless um, uh, as a result of their illness. And so what ACT involves, it really intensive, it, these are for people that have tried the things that Diana's talked about, but they're just not working for them. And it'll involve, for instance, having someone go into the home often, even on a daily basis in some patients, to see what's going on in their home and help them with their medication and to organize their life and their medication use um, so that they can avoid some of these uh, bad outcomes. And, and RAISE is going to be using some of the ACT concepts? Oh yeah. No, ACT is really, um, it's, the idea is to adapt ACT. ACT is very intensive, so it's hard to make available for a large mm -hmm. number of people, but the idea is can we take some of these things such as the outreach, the assertive intervention, best practices, best practices, yeah. and apply them to people where we think we can really make a difference. Yeah. Dan, as with, you know, we, we tailor medications, uh, we're used to that idea. How do we tailor these kinds of interventions uh, to, to individual patients to address what, whatever the barrier is for them? Yeah, so, so underlying what we're talking about is this idea of an illness management model and a concordance model of care, mm. where the clinician and the patient and the family are partnering to decide the best intervention for that particular patient. There is no one-size-fits-all for chronic diseases in general. There is no clear right answer. So we have to work with the patient to understand what are their barriers to treatment, um, what, it, what are their treatment goals, and, and help them achieve those goals. Yeah, this is great. Alex, can you now, we're sort of wrapping up this section, can you briefly summarize for us an overview of you know, what clinicians should be really thinking about um, in terms of tools and issues for medication adherence in, in this schizophrenia patient population? Right, and adherence is, of course, a very common problem. There are really three things um, that the clinicians need to have in their mind. Uh, the first is that this really starts with patient-centered care with a recovery-oriented treatment plan. So to get understand what's the patient's goals, where do they see themselves headed, what's getting in the way, is it relapse because they're noncompliant, for instance, and how can the medication and the medication regimen be tailored to their life and their day-to-day -day life and tailored to their goals so that it's meaningful for them and something they want to do. Um, the second thing is really to think about their environment, so what Diana was talking about, so that there's, um, you know, what's going on in the home, use of pillboxes, uh, behavioral tailoring, so tie it to things like, you know, when they brush their teeth at night or have, there's some way they can set up reminders uh, in the environment to help them 
um, take their medications on a regular basis. And the third thing really is to be open to the idea of changing medication. Yeah, not and one size fits all. It's, it's, it can be very hard as a clinician because you see someone that, you know, maybe they're doing okay, but you're worried about them getting worse. But I think it's important to remember these people are going to be on medications for years. And we really need to find, we're fortunate to find the right medication. We're fortunate that we have a lot of excellent choices now. Yeah. Many, and they're medications that are quite different from each other. We have long-acting injectables. We have a variety, many pill-based forms. Yeah. And so we really have to be open to the idea of finding the right medication for the patient. Yeah. And, and, you know, different propensity to different side effects, you can really pick and choose. Um, so we've discussed the need to recognize the symptoms during the program and the importance of early intervention. We've covered medication adherence and talked about tools that clinicians can use to improve adherence. Now let's move on to our last learning objective, which focuses on creating treatment plans that include patients, families, as well as the treatment team. And let's look at tools that we can incorporate into care settings to improve the competencies of us, of the mental health clinicians. The Joint Commission has standards that require care, that require the care be provided by an interdisciplinary team with individualized treatment plans. We've got some graphics here. You can see guidelines from the Joint Commission which highlight issues regarding competencies and qualifications for clinicians uh, which become anchor points to, to frame our discussion. So Diana, we talked about ACT as it relates to these tools for improving adherence. What can we learn from ACT teams uh, re regarding this kind of team-based care approach? What are some of their key recommendations? Yeah. So, so the key th the key principles of ACT are access, continuity of care, and personalized treatment plans. Um, ACT teams are available 24 hours, um, seven days a week, um, and that's critical to be able to intervene early in a uh, crisis. They follow patients from inpatient to outpatient settings and then back again. Um, the care itself is highly personalized, so there is a low client-to-staff ratio. That means that they can um, be flexible. They a lot can of adjust, flexibility, right? Yeah. They can adjust the services. Sometimes it's you need to um, get rid of the bugs in the house, right? And sometimes it's um, they need a farm, the medications delivered to the patient. So whatever will work, they can they work with the patients to develop. I think the 24-7 is also a key piece. That is key. Yeah, it lowers a lot of people's anxiety on both sides of the right. equation. Um, Alex, um, so we know from Joint Commission requirements that the competency of the care providers themselves uh, is, is important. And you're doing a project on this topic. Can you take us through that? Uh, yes, it's uh, we really we have an important issue with our workforce and mental health. We've, we're fortunate that we have a number of relatively new treatments that are quite effective. Um, psychosocial treatments, things like ACT, which we've talked about, um, supported employment, which returns people to competitive employment, wellness services, which help people lose weight. So that's the good news is we now have these psychosocial um, technologies. Uh, the bad news is that most of us in our training we're not trained in how to use these. Yeah, I don't remember yeah. this in residency. No. no. So we really need to think about how we're going to make these available in the community. So what we started with is the idea of looking at the competencies of our workforce, meaning our clinicians. And so by competencies, we mean here values, knowledge, and skills, meaning what do clinicians know, need to possess to provide high-quality treatment. Now, we understand that no one clinician is going to provide all these treatments. These are complex. Things like supported employment, you really need to have specialists involved. Right. But at the same time, everyone on the team needs to be know how which patients are appropriate for these treatments, 
and when to refer patients and which patients. To those key team members. Right, yeah. exactly. And, yeah. and those people need to be on the team. So what we said is, how can we understand this? And what we started with is we developed, we had a national panel process where we brought together experts and uh, patients and clinicians to figure out what the competencies are the clinician teams need to have to provide these new services and to really achieve excellent high quality outcomes. Mm -hmm. So we, we came up with a competency set which is available on the web as part of the materials. Um, and then we, we then said, well, we'd like to try an intervention to improve these, see if we can improve with education, but we first need a way to, to measure them. Because if you're going to, I think, and it, this is something that really is critical for folks who are thinking about um, their team or the clinical team that they work with. At your hospital or your CMHC. Uh, mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Or a virtual team if you're a private doctor yeah. in office and you set up the team around in the community. So what we did is we developed a survey instrument. There are various ways of measuring competencies. You can do it with semi-structured interviews with folks, but we thought for this that we develop actually a survey that is completed by clinicians. And so we developed an, instru an instrument, subjected it to the standard sort of psychometric testing, and basically showed that we were able to really accurately measure the competencies of the clinicians. We've got a graphic up uh, just showing, you know, great psychometric properties. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the instrument, as you said, is on the CME Outfitters website for today's program. Right. And these are measurable things. And so then we engaged in a, a project with Ed Knight and um, some other uh, experts in this area who went into mental health centers in a couple western states, did an intervention to improve competencies and move care to a recovery model. Um, and measured them before and after using this instrument and found that indeed it is possible to improve you these You can move the numbers and move performance. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, Alex, you were also a lead investigator in a VA study looking at quality improvement in, in schizophrenia. It's called EQUIP. Can you brief us on that study? Right. So the idea here, this is um, uh, out of the VA, which has really a national interest in improving the delivery of evidence-based and recovery-oriented practices. So uh, there's a national VA quality improvement initiative called Query, which provided funding for this controlled trial, um, where we studied uh, an intervention to bring some of the newer practices to mental health clinics and improve the extent to which clinicians provided them and improve patient outcomes. So we had four, it was a controlled trial, so we had eight sites altogether, four of which are in the intervention and four were in a comparison group. So we had four, control, four intervention sites at uh, Houston, uh, Bronx, New York, Temple, Texas, and Long Beach, California, where we worked with uh, the leaders at the sites, the policymakers in the networks, which in the VA is called the VISN, and also at the clinics, and also work with the clinicians and the patients as well to really see if we can get more of these new practices going. Um, You've got four patients. visions here. This is a really representative sample. Right. And it's, 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 you know, anytime you're trying to get things going, you find that every clinic is different. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So every clinic has its own challenges. We tried to develop a model that would respond to the needs of the clinicians and the patients, which may be very different in different locations. Mm -hmm. And you can see um, this is the overall model that we used. The overall idea is an evidence-based quality improvement approach. So um, we all know, and JCO requires quality improvement activities. Um, but at the same time, we know now how to provide quality improvement. There are certain things that work 
with regard to improving care, and that's, that's, we now know that. So that's where evidence-based quality improvement comes in. We worked with the policymakers, the leaders, the clinicians, and uh, experts from the in quality improvement, brought them together to, divine, to design and implement a process to get treatments going. Now, all the policymakers in all these four networks told us, we, we gave them a list of evidence-based practices. We said, which one of these would you like to get more going for your mm. patients? And they all told us that they were concerned about weight, they wanted better services for weight, and particularly weight counseling around diet and exercise. And they also told us they wanted help getting patients back to work. And so uh, we focused on making those available, meaning making sure. And when we, st when we started the project, there were no wellness groups going at these clinics, which I don't think is that unusual. Mm, yeah. And supported employment was hard to come by. Right. So we created those services. But then we found also that we needed to work with patients and clinicians to get patients to actually use them. Because everyone's, you know, used to the 15-minute med checks and the quick in, quick out, and no one's asking patients about whether they want to work, for instance. Yeah. So we routinely, using a kiosk technology, we routinely ask patients questions about what they're interested in and their preferences, and we provided that to them and their clinician to get a more uh, mutual, um, informed treatment planning process going. And we found remarkable things, like we found that 40% of patients wanted to return to work. They wanted competitive employment. And, and nobody knew that. Uh, yeah. No one was asking. No one was asking. <laughs> yes, right. yeah. Patient knew it. Right. Yeah. And so we put quality managers in the clinics. We created reports and reminders to the clinicians and education for the patients so that the patients would ask for things. And the clinicians, when they, when the patient asked or they realized there was an issue in the patient, they would know what to do with that information. Mm -hmm. They would say, well, we have a supported employment program that we know of or we have a wellness group going. It sounds like an ideal program to get ready for your next JCO visit. <laughs> <laughs> and again, there are resources on the webpage uh, about this. So, um, Alex, so what, what turned out to be some of the key barriers to, to optimal care that, that got identified in this and some of the other work you've done? Yeah, I think one of the key barriers was really, again, this workforce issue. We need to help our clinicians and our policymakers understand um, and our patients understand some of these new things. So we really have new treatments available that work, but there's the awareness of them is relatively limited. So, you know, what is supported employment? People didn't really know who was appropriate for them, what they should be asking patients to know whether they should go to supported employment, what that meant for the patient, what's mm -hmm. the commitment, what effect does it have on benefits, all these kind of questions. So really the uh, the competencies of the clinic were important, and also just the organization of care. Again, we need to think about... You know, we're talking about more than just brief medication checks here. Right. We're really talking about building in a routine process and not just having psychiatrists by themselves, but to have them as part of a team that's really thinking about some of the functional outcomes and some of the rehabilitation that we can and, use. You know, this gives you a capacity to do much more. Yeah, and you mentioned that virtual teams, and I yeah. think that's often what, what myself as a clinician who may not have a, you know, a whole team of social workers and voc rehab have to kind of look for in our communities. Um, because the resources aren't there. And I'm not going to be asking questions about uh, weight gain if I don't have an intervention that's going to potentially help the person with the weight gain. Mm -hmm. um, and so becoming aware of, of what community-based resources there might be, is there vocational rehab services in your community, all those things I think can be helpful in constructing this virtual team. Now, you know, I, I wonder if some of this lack of resources or lack of, uh, you know, sometimes knowledge about exactly how to intervene, if that doesn't contribute to some of the burnout that you see uh, among clinical staff. 
Yeah, no, I think it's, it's, it's difficult for people because, you know, we all come into this profession because we want to help people. And if our time is very limited and we don't have access to the practices that actually get the patients better, mm. um, then it, it can become very discouraging to yeah. staff. Yeah. So, so, Alex, what then were the recommendations, the sort of uh, policy issues that, that, to improve care that came out of all this? Well, uh, we really need to start by getting a process together with clinicians, patients, and policymakers, a quality improvement process, because the expectations are quite different. For instance, we found that the policymakers were very interested in weight as uh, and work as outcomes, but the clinicians were sort of burned out in that regard. They said, well, I'm just keeping the psychosis under control, and that's my priority, and I can't think about those things. Mm-hmm. So we really need to bring those parties together. And the patients had their own set of, ex- of objectives and expectations. And so we need to really bring those groups together so we have a coherent plan. You know, Now, having said that, there's also a need for really a robust service system. So we need to, you know, the clinicians need to know, well, if I ask someone about work, can I do something with that information? Yeah. Because what's, you know, I, for years I haven't asked because I was, you know, well, I, you know, some clinicians will think they can't return to work, which is, you know, turns out the research shows it's not true. Um, but they do need supportive services. Yeah. You've got to have a program to work in. And where are they in my yeah. community? No, I think Deanna made a good point about, uh, you know, it's, it's very hard to go fishing for certain problems if you don't, in fact, have any tools up your sleeve to try to solve it. So, so Diana, what about the family? Do, do they have a role in helping to improve outcomes? I mean, we've been talking about multidisciplinary clinical teams. What about the family? I, mean, I think the families are an excellent tool that we have up our sleeve, and often they're underutilized. Um, we, we know that family intervention can prevent relapse and improve outcomes. Um, but what family, the tools families need, first of all, is education. They need education about the, the illness and factors that reduce relapse risk, and they need to be part of the treatment planning. What resources do they have? To, what, what can they bring to the table to help improve the outcome for their family member? And, and this is a different therapeutic model than many of us were trained in. This is not the old psychotherapeutic model where you want to keep families at a distance. This is an illness management model, and we want to embrace families as part of the treatment team. Yeah. And, uh, Alex, there, I, I think there, there was also some guidance. Uh, we've got it mostly on the web at this point in the program, uh, but, but an actual, I think we have a graphic here uh, about some approaches that can be taken. Uh, any top-line comments on right. that? Yeah, no, this is a very challenging area. We know from research studies again and again that if families are involved, if they're supportive of the treatment, they understand the treatment, they know what to look for in terms of noncompliance or relapse, and they have the services that they need, that outcomes are much better. Um, so the the real question is, but and yet at the same time, we know that there's very little in the way of family services going mm-hmm. now for a variety of reasons. So the first, it's sort of a three-stage process, which is what you see on the slide. The first stage is to set up figure out a way to actually start talking to your family members. And these could be parents if they're younger individuals. They could be children. They could be friends. But the support system, bring them into the visit. Have them in the room. Have them on the phone. Start the conversation. Mm -hmm. Find out what's going on. That's the first step. Uh, The second step is uh, to deliver a brief family education. So things like the NAMI family-to-family program. Great tools. And it's, it's, those mm-hmm. provide real useful tools for families in their, so that they can support their loved ones. That's great. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so Diana and Alex, you, you've both done an excellent job providing us with evidence-based tools that we can use to improve the care of our patients. And I'm certain we have a lot of questions. I've already gotten some 
from clinicians out there. So, so let me give our audience instructions on asking these questions. Some people already know. You can call, email, or fax us with your questions and comments. If you want to call, it's 800-879-2166. Or you can fax your questions to 240-465-5524. Or you can email us at questions at cmeoutfitters.com. It's a great opportunity for you to talk to two leaders in the field on this topic. While we wait for some more questions to come in, I do want to mention uh, some of these resources. Alex just mentioned a NAMI program, and uh, we all want to be aware of this. Um, we have a graphic here that I think we can call up. Uh, it's got the NAMI peer-to-peer program and a web address. The NAMI family-to-family program, that's a really great tool, another web address. I'd also encourage you to look at the, in your local community, school and community-based resources that are often available. And just to alert you, up and coming, NAMI has yet another program. It's called Hearts and Minds. It'll be more toward the, you know, just as the policymakers wanted to address weight, I mean, it's going to be addressing weight and metabolic risk. And the American Diabetes Association um, has a toolkit we help them with. It'll be up on their web, available for free on managing diabetes risk and people taking antipsychotics. Isn't that NAMI Hearts and Mind for families? That's for families. It's really, it's exactly what you're talking about, Mm -hmm. this idea of engaging the family in the process of of a shared approach to reducing risk. So it's it's fantastic. Um, I've got some great questions already. Um, let me start with um, let me start with this one. It's it's from Marianne. Uh, she points out that that we said that ACT was for the sickest patients. Why? Uh, if it's if it improves adherence, why not utilize this on a more regular basis? Great question. Right. And, it, and it, the answer is it would be great to use it on a more regular basis. The real problem is the cost. That it's just it's a very resource intensive intervention, yeah. and the cost is much higher. You know, five f- times as more than we are usually spending on individuals um, at clinics. So if people can make it available, that's great. But as you know, as it is, we probably need to focus it on people who are you know, homeless or getting rehospitalized or persistently non-adherent yeah. or who have maybe going back to jail or have, you know, behavior. A little more problems. targeting toward the highest risk population. Mm-hmm. Another great question, Diana, can, can you differentiate, it's Dr. Chin, can you differentiate the evidence regarding treatment in the prodrome versus treatment in first episode? Right. So there are only three studies, um, clinical trial, controlled clinical trials for treatment in the prodrome. One involved an antipsychotic alone, one involved an antipsychotic and psychotherapy, and one involved psychotherapy. Hmm. And they showed that all all of those interventions worked while they were active at reducing the risk of psychosis. People that got the active intervention after a year were at much lower risk of developing psychosis. Once the intervention stopped the risk returned back to what it would have been. So they don't offer any long-term intervention, with the exception of the psychotherapy, which actually seemed to have some lasting benefits long-term. very interesting. And as you pointed out earlier, and we really should emphasize, two-thirds of this prodromal population is actually not going to go on Mm -hmm. to get psychotic. So... Mm you may be exposing a lot more people to the risks of antipsychotics mm-hmm. than, than need to be. And, and also, what may be appropriate the prodrome, even for a psychotic patient, may be different than what happens when someone develops the disorder. Mm-hmm. There are clinical trials underway for things like omega-3 fatty acids in, for, for prodromal intervention. Yeah. So we'll, we'll see. And, and the other part of that question was treatment in the first episode, right. for which there are it's many huge, more studies. Huge yeah. evidence base. That, yeah. that, and not only that you need antipsychotics early, but 
maintenance treatment with, with antipsychotics is key to preventing relapse. I think this just changed in the port guidelines, the mm -hmm. NIMH-funded uh, schizophrenia guidelines, where I think we used to say that a first episode gets a round of treatment and then gets to take a break. Right. And I think we pulled that back, and, and once you've got the diagnosis, it's really about maintenance. Yeah, 99% yeah. will have a relapse. Yeah. Even if you, and they recover completely from a first episode, which is the exciting news we see. That's what kind of prompted Ray's. Yeah. Right, I, and I think it's really important, even if folks aren't going to prescribe antipsychotics, for someone like the case, like the example that we showed earlier, yeah. someone early in the illness, because perhaps the side effects outweigh the benefits, it's really important to keep in touch with that family mm -hmm. and that individual and keep assessing them, monitoring them, because that one third that go on to schizophrenia, you really want to catch them early. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, I think we may have uh, some people on the phone. Uh, Okay, okay. Well, then I've still got some questions here while we're setting that up. Uh, Dr. Wadner, uh, how do you switch the patient who's gained weight, first episode patient who's gained weight, and the family doesn't want to switch? They're worried about, I mean, understandably worried about the recurrence of this terrible psychosis, which has now presumably gotten under some degree of control. Right. So that's where you, an engagement um, with the patient and the families over their priorities and working with them. So it, families may be so afraid of relapse risk that they're not willing to try switching. And, and truly, that is the main risk of switching antipsychotics mm -hmm. is the second medicine may not work as well. A person may suffer a relapse. So I really do think that's an individual decision. But they do need to understand the significant consequences of right. weight gain, engage them in these behavioral treatments that mm -hmm. can work. I, I even use, and these are um, um, they're, they're research trial-based, but they're uh, not FDA-approved, but something like metformin I have mm -hmm. found to be useful in presenting weight gain. And there are controlled clinical trials that suggest some of yeah. these adjunctive medicines might have a benefit. Yeah, and we just so, want to emphasize, you know, uh, that's off-label. It's, it, yes. it, you know, there are randomized trials at this point supporting that. Um, it's not an FDA-approved exactly. indication. One of my concerns about uh, metformin in this population is metformin's got its own uh, sure. set of liabilities, mm. including a long-term diarrhea that can be quite a right. challenge. Yeah. So it's all exploring risks and benefits yeah. with the patient and family and then coming up with and a... Clearly the long-term right. education about uh, this patient population goes on in the United States, in the public sector certainly, to have an average age of death of about 52. Yeah. And it's from premature coronary uh, artery disease, typically, right. um, and so we're trying to nip the risks in the bud. Exactly. And, it's, and it's much easier to not gain weight than it is to lose it. Exactly. Boy, that's As something that's we all right. We all know, even in the best of circumstances, <laughs> losing weight is a big challenge. And I think the other thing that's worth remembering um, is that the best strategy for managing a side effect is to remove the agent that's causing the side effect and switch to something else. So That's right. Yeah. Ge that's a general principle, not that's only true. in psychiatry, but in... in um, National Cholesterol Education Program, uh, the Adult Treatment Panel Guidelines, if there's a so-called secondary cause of dyslipidemia, level one intervention is remove the offending agent mm -hmm. if at all possible. Though so, so we also, we have to remember this is not necessarily an easy thing to fit in because if you're switching antipsychotics, you can't have the person back in three months. Yeah. You have to have them back frequently. Yeah. So you can detect the psychosis early on and manage it, to go back to the agent or this adjust is huge. the agent. I yeah. mean, uh, you know, I've worked in lots of different practice settings, and in those settings where it was really mandated by the medical director that during a switch, the patient has to come back within a month, not, not necessarily at a month, but within a month, 
during that early transition period, mm -hmm. I mean, we saved so many potential relapses. And this is also where you engage the family and right. having a relapse prevention plan. And the family knows what symptoms to monitor because so they can be a useful the, the tool. The watching is mm -hmm. happening in the home as well. Yeah. Great question here from... Uh, Dr. Edward uh, Gentile, um, he's uh, in southern Arizona. It's unclear to me from the presentation whether or not you're advocating early intervention with antipsychotics as part of the intervention. If you are, why or why not? In what instances would you suggest it according to the data so far? So, so antipsychotics are reserved for when a person has persistent psychotic symptoms that meet criteria for a brief psychotic episode or schizophreniform or, or schizophrenia. The but these prodromal symptoms, I have followed now over 100 patients, and I have seen people who I were sure were going to develop schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. A month later, they're gone, and five years later, the symptoms are still gone. So this is these kind yeah. of psychotic-like symptoms can be very transient. You know, the brain's developing, um, people are under stress, they can be overwhelmed, there's all, they can be using substances and stop using substances. You know, there's yeah. all kinds of reasons why only a third get psychotic, but it's, it's really true. We're talking, I mean, I think it's important, he, he, he didn't, mishear, didn't mishear us, we were talking about it because there have been experimental trials yes. looking at antipsychotic use in that prodromal population, and, and it works, it's just Well, they take the medicine, benefit. it's the risk yeah. benefit, because two-thirds yeah. of people aren't pre-schizophrenia, and so here you're exposing them to an antipsychotic with the neurologic risk, the weight metabolic risk, and they were never going to get schizophrenia anyway. So um, that's the problem. Um, I've got a, a key question here. Can you talk about, Dr. Minglo, can you talk about the role of meds and getting to recovery? How do you define recovery? Right. Great question. It's a great <laughs> question. <laughs> it, it's a great question. And there have been whole conferences, and, you know, SAMHSA has an official definition. Large documents. Large <laughs> documents. I mean, you know, I, I think there's certain features of recovery that we can keep in mind uh, as clinicians. Um, one is it's really a focus on the process and the possibility of improvement. Um, you know, people aren't going to be cured of the illness, but there is the possibility of improvement, and we need to keep that in mind. Uh, second thing is it really involves having a patient-centered approach to care, that the patient is driving the care. We're consultants to them, we're educating them, but in the end it's them and their family that's going to determine uh, what's going to happen. And then it also means that we really, you know, when a patient wants a recovery-oriented services, if they come to us or they say, I want to get back to work, you know, we have to have, have something, something to offer. And, and yeah. we do, the research does, but we have to actually know how to proceed with that. Yeah. Well, and, and to segue into another question that we got, um, uh, here's somebody asking, I work in a community mental health center. How can we make cat and farm cat available to our patients? I mean, how, how can folks now access some of these tools that are being developed in the research setting? I mean, that's a great question. I've actually written to the authors, and they've been willing to share the manuals. And so I think those things, they may even be available on their website. I'm not sure. But, um, but I, I think that that's, and there are, I understand, some toolkits that mm -hmm. are potentially people can access through SAMHSA. And you can start by uh, having education or in-service for your clinicians, not just the doctors, but the other folks, the social workers, psychologists, mm -hmm. nurses, if they're available. Um, there are things you can do with regard to tailoring the medications, such as often the meds can be moved to once a day dosing, or they may have pill boxes, or you can create reminders or other strategies. And these kind of approaches are something that really the, anyone in the team can do. The case manager can, can educate the patient and the family about this, the doctor can. So mm -hmm. are there, there are things you can do, um, even if you're not able to provide the whole 
uh, CAD intervention. But even yeah. getting ideas, you can go to like the SAMHSA website has a great has the ACT toolkit available, and people can look at that, can Maybe download can it make that, to get we some can ideas. We can add that to our uh, website here. Mm -hmm. um, I've got a great question here from Dr. Rolando. What's the evidence regarding these agents, both conventional and atypicals, in weight gain? Uh, I think it was I said they were different molecules. Explain. Good, thank you. Um, the issue is uh, you'll now see in the FDA labeling, the package insert labeling for the second generation drugs, reference to the idea that these drugs exist along a spectrum of risk. And there are drugs which have greater risk for producing weight gain and dyslipidemia and, and hyperglycemia. And there are drugs with lesser risk. We, we don't have drugs with zero risk. And I think we want to emphasize that, that you see that same spectrum of risk in the first generation group. Mm -hmm. um, there's not as, quite as much data available, but it looks as though some of our very first antipsychotics, chlorpromazine, thyrizidine, mesorizidine, um, these drugs had nearly the weight gain liability as some of the uh, drugs that are associated with the largest effects in the second generation group, belanzapine and clozapine. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't think this is a first versus second generation issue. This is about high risk versus low risk yeah. individual agents. And it's, it, it's also, it's about managing. It's a challenging situation because some of our most effective agents are also the ones that cause the most weight gain. And, you know, for instance, clozapine, which is the uh, medication we don't use enough of, the only medication that we have that clearly works in people who are not responding to the other medications, causes substantial weight gain. Mm -hmm. you, you mentioned a great point, Alex. I mean, this, there, there's a lot of controversy. There's no controversy that clozapine is the gold standard for treatment-resistant patients. There's a lot of controversy about this idea of more or less effective within the rest of the group. And some of this gets tangled up with another individualized patient issue, and that is how much this individual patient needs uh, sedation or calming effect or anti-anxiety effect built into their overall cocktail. Some patients don't want that at all, and some patients really desperately need it. And so sometimes those drugs that are a little more sedating uh, mm -hmm. meet that need. And yet there may be other pharmacologic approaches to get at that same need. You could use a lower-risk antipsychotic in combination with I'm just talking off the top of my head, but something mm -hmm. like an adjunctive mm -hmm. benzodiazepine. And, and that's a discussion I actually have with patients and their families yeah. about a continuum of risk, risk benefits, and that individual differences in treatment response are much greater than, than, than overall differences. So how, well, I know that 70% of people are going to get better if I put them on drug X. Yeah. I don't know how John is going to do. We have to try it in him and Well, and, and you also need to, um, it's an informed discussion. So if they say, well... Uh, you know, he's a little overweight, he's had problems with weight in the past, we really want to try clozapine or we want to try another medication that has causes substantial weight gain. Um, then there needs to be the discussion, well, you, at the very beginning, we need to start getting really good education. We need to get the diet under control. Yeah. Right. Yeah. right. And we need to get uh, so that we can prevent any problems. We've got a lot of questions that are about what would you do with John. Yeah. Okay, so you want to tackle yeah. that. I right. think this I, was your patient. I actually saw John on Friday. And, um, and what, we, what we talked about with, with John, first of all, is providing some education because these are scary symptoms. He doesn't yeah. know what these are. And it, it's a relief for him actually to hear that it may be his mind playing tricks on him because um, if it's real, if, if the people are really criticizing him, that's a, a terrible thing to have happen. And so just providing that education often reduces anxiety level. The second thing we're going to do with John is do is provide him with some psychotherapy. And the psychotherapy has both a cognitive behavioral approach, you know, what makes you 
think that these people are talking about you? Is that the only thing that could be happening? Mm -hmm. um, how can you check it out? For example, you know, so mm -hmm. standard cognitive behavioral approaches, and then we do a lot with stress management because with I think as the interventions that have been part of these clinical trials really work to reduce anxiety. And these interventions are going to help John whether no he's what. in the two thirds that goes on not to develop a psychotic disorder mm -hmm. or the one third that does. That, that's right. I mean, when anyone's overwhelmed, you get a little crazy. Yeah. And and John's clearly yeah. overwhelmed. And so those are the psychotherapeutic approaches. You know, in terms of medication, if you were to meet criteria for a major depression, I might try an antidepressant. Yeah. Um, the um, and the other thing we talk about is the importance of monitoring. That he knows that these symptoms can get worse, but usually they don't. And that we're going to work with him to try and prevent them and from getting family. worse. And his family. Yeah. But if they do get worse, what do they do? Yeah. So. Okay, unfortunately we're out of time, but I would remind our audience to stay with us for the after the show segment, uh, which will start in about two minutes. Uh, Diana, can you provide us with some clinical points now uh, that clinicians can connect to their care of patients? Yeah. And the first is intervene early. An intervention may be providing education and symptom monitoring for a person who's having these clinical high-risk symptoms, or it may be starting with an antipsychotic for a person who has a frank psychotic disorder, but it's important to reserve the antipsychotics for people where we know they, where the evidence base is strong, mm -hmm. that they are uh, beneficial, um, because regardless, they're going to need medications long-term, and we know there's significant long-term risk with these medicines, yep. that this collaborative patient-centered treatment model is, gonna be, is key to chronic disease management, period, and it's as true for your bipolar patients, your depressed patients, as it is for your schizophrenia patients. Um, and then finally, um, families should be involved in re recovery. That um, yeah, fantastic. Alex, what clinical connections do you want to give to our audience? Yeah, I, I would just echo that. That really the the point here is recovery oriented and patient centered care. That we need to you know spend time with a patient, get to know what their goals are, um, what this their strengths are, what barriers they have. Um, what their experience has been with medication, and work on medication in that context. Um, and whether it's changing medication or long-acting medication, provide them with hope and some ideas and some education about where they can go. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I would um, uh, suggest is really think about your treatment team in terms of the practices that we know we need to be providing for a substantial number of patients. So I, it's quite likely that if I went to your clinic or your patient population with schizophrenia, probably close to half of them would want to return to work. Mm -hmm. Probably more than half of them would be obese or substantially overweight. Um, yeah, more than half. More than half. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, an enormous yeah. number. Yeah. And so if we're not providing, if we don't have wellness education, if we don't have supported employment, uh, we know there's something missing with regard to the team and the competencies and uh, where we need to go with this population. That's great. Diana and Alex, thank you both for joining me today. To our audience, please stay with us for our After the Show segment, which will begin shortly. I'd also like to remind our audience to check our website. You heard about a lot of resources that are going to be there, www.neurosciencecme.com, for a complete listing of broadcasts as well as these resources. I'm Dr. John Newcomer, thanking you for joining us today, and I hope you're able to incorporate the evidence we've discussed today into improved care for your patients. Thanks. See you next time.